Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight is my regular wingman, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome to the show. It's great to be back again. I was just here last week. It was fun. We, we missed you. My winter of wargaming took an odd turn as I fought the battle of trying to eat solid food again. Uh, we had a stomach bug going around Boston that um, it's like any other normal stomach flu, except you don't get better for 20 days. Uh, so that was that was a fun fe- fun way to spend my February. Well, uh, we're glad to have you back, and where we can re- re- restart or reboot the winter of wargaming because we took a detour through city building uh, last week. But let's get back to all the fun stuff: the death, the death, the destruction, and the victory points. Troy, you, you sort of had an idea go riffing off of some of the stuff we've been talking about with the war games we're playing, and it was sort of about how you decide who wins a war game. Yeah, I mean, we all do these theme shows every now and then, and I think we should have one right kind of in the middle of the winter of war gaming to talk about the way that war games talk about victory. What is a victory in a war game? And a lot of it comes down to how the scenario was designed and what the scenario designer thinks is important or how they try to capture the history of that battle or of that campaign. And this is not always an obvious thing. And it's come up many times. We've talked about different war games throughout the history of the podcast. Uh, The issue of uh, casualties or terrain or turn limits or how sometimes the design of a game bumps up against the uh, way victory conditions are defined. Thinking of the Panzer General games, for example, which are about hammering hard points and taking cities in a relatively short amount of time. So that really twists the game away from, as we, when we talk about Panzer Corps, away from a war game into a more puzzle gamey type thing, and how this changes how you approach the game, how the game tries to understand war. So I thought it would be interesting for you and I to have a talk about what does victory mean in a war game? Uh, how do war games present the idea of winning? Um, and how they value different things in different circumstances, depending on the designer, depending on the time period, uh, and depending on, you know, maps and all the fun stuff. You know, what, what does it mean to win, I guess, is the big question. Yeah, and usually, you know, so when I, start, when I started playing war games, how you won tended to be very simple. Uh, and it was grab the, grab the space on the map that had a flag next to it and make that flag your color. Uh, and that, that was kind of it. And, you know, as a kid, it sort of fit with my idea of how wars were fought. I, you know, when I was reading, um, you know, stories about, like, you know, the Battle of Gettysburg and stuff, it totally seems like battles hinged on, like, who controlled this, this hillock, you know, at this crucial stage of the battle. And that determines the outcome of the Civil War or something. That, you know, yeah. that's, that's sort of how I understood things. And so it, it's sort of it sort of made a, a, a natural amount of sense to me that war games would be all about getting your troops to some sort of like magic space on the map, converting it to yours, and then just hanging on to it and waiting for the win. And I guess over time that started to you know th- there's there's games where I find that appropriate and it, it really works well, and then there's other times I find it rankles a little bit because it sort of seems to ignore. We've all had those games right where like if you look at the map, somebody got his ass kicked. But he's on the he's on the one hex that he needs to be, and so he still wins, even though everything else is obliterated. And you always get that sort of dissonant moment, right? Where it's like, yeah, but it's like one dude holding this hex, and he's surrounded by like eight panzers. What's going to happen next? Or the, the contrary case, something that happens a lot in games when I'm, when I'm learning a new war game is, I may win the scenario and take all the objectives, but at a brutally high cost. You know, I'm, I'm Lee winning the Battle of Gettysburg, even though I've lost two-thirds of my army. I mean, okay, you, you can call this a win, kind of. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm holding round top. And I can march my tattered army close to Pittsburgh, I guess. Uh, but to call this a victory by if by any definition, using the magic hill uh, definition of victory, I control these points, always seemed a little bit weird. And I'm a bad general doing bad things, but I'm holding the right territory. And a lot of early war games, um, for a number of reasons, simplicity being the big one, really emphasize that aspect. Going back, going back into history, I mean, like you say, you read about 
Gettysburg. Oh, it, it really comes, all the locations have funky names and powerful names, so they're deemed to be important, and they were considered important by the generals. So the war game designer then says, okay, so this is going to be worth 25, and this is going to be worth 50, based on what the generals at the time thought were important uh, locations on the battlefield. Uh, so your strategy ends up being defined by the strategy set by somebody 150 years ago. You know, it, it sort of seems like there's a, there's a couple threads I want to pick up here. And, yeah. and, and first is that, you know, the sort of like magic victory location thing seems to lend itself really well to board games. Uh, because it's going to be you and a friend sitting down. You're gonna you're gonna play for one session, however long that goes, and it's a really simple way of first of all giving the players like something to focus on. It can be actually really weird to play an unstructured war game where it's just kind of like you show up and see what happens. It can actually be kind of disorienting tactically to just have a map and troops on it and yeah. just sort of go figure it out for yourself. And so it's kind of helpful to have the you know the, the rules of engagement set. Here's the objective. It really lends itself to that you know, one-on-one -on -one, uh, encounter, where I find things get a little, uh, little, a little trickier. And you, you start to see this with, like, 90s wargaming. Panzer General is a great example. Um, so, uh, so is a game like Steel Panthers. Yeah. Uh, and even games like um, uh, Close Combat is you had them, on the one hand, sort of still, still cleaving to this idea of you control the victory location and you you win the battle and that's 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 how you that's how you decide but then you're also sort of trying to fit it into a larger chain of scenarios and one of the assets you have to manage over the course of these campaigns is your veteran core that you're going to be carrying over from scenario to scenario. Steel Panthers did this too, right? Where you had mm -hmm. a few elements that you were sort of carrying as like your almost like personal guard, right? From campaign to campaign. And if you took care of them, they would be with you from, you know, the invasion of Poland all the way through, uh, you know, the, the drive on Moscow. And those guys would get really good, and you sort of, you know, sort of like Napoleon did with the old guard, sort of fetishized them, gave them all the cool equipment. Uh, but... It, it, it got a little tricky then because you had to weigh the scenario, uh, ter the terms of the scenario, which were you have to take this this hex, and that's that's all that matters for, for deciding who's going to win. But then those losses you're talking about, they actually started to really matter a lot in these, these war games that sort of chain scenarios together because suddenly you had to weigh, like, what was that decisive victory really worth to you weighed against these guys that, you know, were kind of a irreplaceable resource the the experience these units represented couldn't you, you didn't want to have to be like it's the XCOM problem you don't want to, have to yep. be training a bunch of newbies halfway through the war or you're dead yeah i mean the, the, the campaign type games with chain scenarios and the units that carry on really do present a challenge for the scenario designer uh, because you do want to have you want to have the tension. You want to have the idea that okay, if you're going to have a unit carrying on, you're going to be giving them experience and you know all the perks of being you know the elite Zachdy and guard at the front. Then you have to make it worth using them. You don't want to just you have to make the player use them because you don't want to just have vanity troops. I mean, you're you're kidding them out for a reason. You're kidding them out to have super units that you can you know send to the front, and they'll be the they'll be the point of the spear driving forward, pushing all the enemy veteran units back, which are never going to be as good as your veteran units because they're not the ones that have been carried on uh, and kitted out from mission one. So the scenarios kind of have to be. First of all, you have to be ready for that. And sometimes that means that you, if you do lose a veteran unit early or you don't spend those veteran units properly, then the scenario 7, 8, 9, 10 in a campaign could be have victory conditions that presume you're a better general than you are. They're presuming that you've carried on more units, that you haven't been, you know, General Haig like me, you know, sending people over the uh, over the top to get to that unit to get to that objective that you are always pushing for that decisive victory uh, intelligently and not stupidly um, and that requires you to often replay the scenarios over and over again just to because the victory conditions are understood 
in terms of how the player has been playing the campaign instead of, okay, this is what the scenario looked like. So that way, it's not just the history that's guiding how the scenario defines victory. It is the expectations of the player that are defining how victory in a scenario will be decided. Yeah, and I think you, the, the where you run into problems with that is this is a really tough balancing act, I mm-hmm. think, when it comes to scenario design. And, you know, it's interesting. It, it, it requires, you know, I can definitely think of games where it worked out pretty well like I, I would say one of my favorite war games of all time was close combat a bridge too far mm-hmm. and that was a game that actually scaled really well between you know the shorter operations and then the larger like uh, theaters if you're going to like command the entire arnhem operation or the entire eindhoven operation or you could fight the entire battle of uh you know operation market garden and because that's on this compressed time scale um it's a situation that kind of lends itself to that 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 balance between winning the map, winning the battle, and then preserving your forces because that's really what that entire campaign is about, right? Like how much right. how how worth it is it to make your stand here at the expense of some of your crack troops versus maybe give up ground and try to you know try to preserve these guys for another day because you you need them you've got to hang on to them and that lends itself to that pretty well. I, I found that with games that are like that are sort of trying to create this saga of troops going through an entire war, you know, like the Panzer General series did, like uh, later close combats even did, where it was you know you're you're going to lead your company through the entire war in the East. Good luck. Um, and, and that become I, I, I found that would become just a little bit unsustainable because because it, it turns into this. You, it's really easy to find yourself as a player, you know, to realize maybe three quarters of the way through the campaign that you really shouldn't have eaten those losses you took on scenario four, and that's having knock on effects that's costing you increasingly dearly. Uh, as the as, as the game drags on, and that's that, that's a difficult thing to solve for. Yeah, I mean it's it's you know it's as as Bruce would say that's that's how it was. I mean that is you know historically accurate. You know you have battles that cost you too much and you can't sustain the campaign. There's so many records in history of that sort of thing. I mm-hmm. mean Charles the Twelfth whole whole campaign in Russia was fell apart because he could not sustain the casualties. He was uh, he was taking and you know frederick the great avoided as many battles as he could and just fought the ones he knew he could win by a huge margin because he knew he didn't have the manpower to sustain a whole uh, long campaign so you know this type of this kind of paranoia um it's historically appropriate but you know when i'm playing a game and i'm and i don't know that i'm hosed until i'm two-thirds of the way through that kind of sucks um, because you don't always want to go back and play the invasion of whatever battle you want. You don't want to go back and play, oh, I shouldn't have lost that tank unit going through Belgium. You don't want to play Belgium again. Belgium's boring. Belgium's full of boring people. I love you, Belgium. Belgium listeners. Sorry, I'm thinking about the EU. Uh, so you don't want to think about going back and playing it over and over again. Um, but if your victory depends on having... Uh, is is built around the assumption that you have a really strong, solid core. Um, it's a way to, you know, I'm sure what they're trying to do is they're trying to encourage you to develop skills, encourage you to do the things that we and our listeners love to do. You know, master the system, get really, really good at it, come back, try again, um, and then you'll get through. And that's great, and that's admirable. But, you know, some of these scenarios in some of these games take a very long time. Um, and it's... Um, it's kind of asking a lot, I think, to the victory assumption that depends on you having made the right allocation decisions two weeks ago. Yeah, that's another good point, too, is also the foresight that sort of requires of the player. Because another feature of a lot of games like this is that you might need, in one scenario or something... An extra anti-tank gun that's you know pretty good, 
Um, but yeah. then after that, you're not going to be fighting too many battles from like static positions where an anti-tank gun is going to help you very much. And so it's very easy to end up with a force that you know was really shaped by one particular battle. And then you you're, you're sort of forced to go to from scenario to scenario, facing completely different objectives, mm-hmm. and everything's kind of hamstrung by the fact that at some point you were having trouble with tanks, <laughs> and you really needed to beef up your tank defense. And, and so it's just it, you know the the thing about a lot of really good war game design is. In, in one-off scenarios, they, they can be really finely tuned, right? That you can doubt, you can say, these guys have this pool, this pool of units on this terrain. Here's the other side with their pool of units, and that's like we've really constrained the tactical options available to you, and you've got to see what you can do with this with this set. And the more you try to take that that scenario model but then daisy chain it together into a longer saga the more i think that 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 whole conception of okay but it's really about like you know grabbing this this magic hex the more that starts to break down because over the you know when you take it outside of that one-off context Mm -hmm. it becomes i think the artifice shows through a lot more because you're trying to simulate running a war effort in some ways, but you're trying to tell that story in these discrete little, like, you know, tactical McNuggets. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, I understand the appeal of these. I think there's some really, really great games. I mean, we're not saying these aren't, these are bad games uh, by any I've means. I've played a lot of, pan- a lot of uh, Steel Panthers. A yeah, lot. The close combat games are just, you know, really, really outstanding and still are, and I highly, highly recommend you looking for them. Uh, but they do presume uh a certain type of foresight um a certain type of you know you can you can always cheat and read ahead as what the scenario is going to involve um but i understand why people do it it's kind of it's it, it's that's the role playing aspect i mean this is the rpg side of war games i mean that's one reason i think a lot of a lot of strategy gamers are really also big rpg players i know that i love my rpgs uh it's because there's this kind of crafting and develop building a character and uh, turning them into something that's yours and these these the daisy chain games i think is a really good let's just call them that um they let you build the core of your army in a special way that's yours um and you build up this identity with these troops. Um, I know that uh, for a long time there was talk of the combat mission, people Battlefront, trying to do a campaign version game of that that would be similar to these Daisy Chain type games, and they never did it. They tried uh, really hard too. It basically broke. They them. really did. They, they put a lot of time into trying to make that work, um, and they never got very far. Uh, as far as I know, um, and I I'm, and I think for a number of reasons, I'm not sure the system uh, would have handled it uh, quite quite well. Those games do take quite a bit of power. Um, just trying to imagine uh, the processing involved and trying to keep all of that individual data persistent, plus the map. I'm not sure how they're going to do the maps, but I I just love and I love the idea of it, but it does present different challenges for a scenario designer and the player than you do from a really well-crafted scenario based on, okay, this is a scenario about Market Garden. And here's how Market Garden was, and here's how we're interpreting Market Garden, and we think a victory Market Garden would mean these five things. You've got to do four of them for a decisive victory. I mean, and a really good scenario design, and we could probably have, we should probably actually do a show on war game scenario design, because and get some really good stereo designers in here to talk about that, because that's something that's, you know, I don't know a whole lot about. I know a good one when I see one. Uh, there's more to it than just a map and putting down victory locations and putting down an order of battle. A, a good scenario has to have, you know, the proper pacing and the right number of turns and the right challenge at the right time. Um, and I just keep going back and thinking about um, the course and pocket show you did with Bruce. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, last month. One of my favorite of recent podcasts, by the way. I really, really love that discussion, because uh, I really love that game, uh, for one reason. But, yeah, I mean, just... And the way that, you know, that game presents not a, not a great interface 
going back now, but it presents the, the, the challenges really, really, really clearly what you have to try to do and then make, makes you try to do them. And it's in a very different way from other games about the course in pocket. And I think it understands victory in different ways uh, about that. And I think, you know, we could, I'm, here I am detouring, but a show that I think we should be doing later in the year. Ignore me. Uh, but there's, I think there's really something to a good, solid scenario, just pure standalone scenario design that makes it different from a scenario, even if it's the very same battle, uh, understood through a daisy chain of units you're carrying forward and how you understand victory and the price you're willing to pay and the turn limit you impose is going to look very, very different, even if it was a similar system. They're never very similar, but I, I just can't imagine um, the skills not being remarkably, remarkably different as to making a game good and interesting. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the combat mission example, I think, is interesting because those are games that are really... The, the scenario design in those games is so hyper-specific, um, where... You go, you go into these different battles, and my memories of, of battles in those games are actually very vivid. And part of that was because it was a very dramatic game. But another part of it is with, with that 3D engine and everything and the, and the kind of moments they tended to excerpt, there is an incredible variety in what you can do uh, you know, at the company battalion level uh, in, in World War II. And that game really stretch like one like you know one day you were doing house to house fighting in you know you know you, you're doing like like house to house fighting in Paris as the as the allies are clearing out the last pockets of german resistance and the very next scenario you're you know charging down a couple dirt lanes to a small french crossroads village and it's got a little bit of you know street fighting a little bit of like you know open terrain warfare a little bit of hedgerow all these all these different things and when you can do, do that, when, when you can craft the scenario objectives around the terrain and then also what, what you're giving to both sides, you can, you can get that, that level of specificity. And I think when, you are, when you're trying to sort of create you know, the, the, these longer sagas, uh, you start to have to make things uh, a little less... Uh, a, a little less specific, a little, a little more uh, flexible. And I would say, like, Steel Panthers was a great example of this, right? Where, like, no matter where you were fighting, it was all kind of very similar, right? Like, there, uh, there might be a few major terrain features, but, you know, in, 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 in Steel Panthers, if you were fighting in Poland or fighting in France or fighting in Russia, it kind of felt similar, right? Where, yeah. where, the, where the same tax, tactics tended to work in, in, in that game. Whereas in Combat Mission, it was kind of like, okay, here's your next scenario, and okay, everything, everything you learned in that previous scenario, not really applicable here. Uh, good luck. Well, just think about the random scenario designer, a generator uh, in Combat Mission, which was really, really good. I don't want to put down the random uh, generator, which I liked quite a bit. Um, but its idea of victory conditions was, okay, I'll pop a flag here, a flag here, and a flag here. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it would lead to really, really interesting battles because really the early combat missions, there's no way to not have an interesting battle unless it's, you know, a bunch of T-34s versus some Italian tanks. That's not going to be a fun. It's going to be, it's going to be a turkey shoot. And that, that can be fun. But otherwise, it's just an impossible, the system is, the game is just too good to not make things not to be interesting. But the random scenario generator didn't really feel like, they, they were, it was interesting, it was varied, but it didn't give you the sense of, you know, craft as to what the challenge is, where are the troops supposed to be going and why? What did victory for this squad mean in this place in Italy at this time? Um, and that's kind of neat. Uh, and of course, like all, like many war games, it also had a casualty. How many casualties you inflicted, and how many casualties mm -hmm. did you not suffer? That contributed uh, to your victory. It wasn't just, you know, the magic flags, so though they were important. Uh, casualties were very important. We should probably talk about the importance of casualties in victory as well, because um, so many games do that. But it, it's, I mean, it just, the combat mission, I just can't understand. I don't see how 
daisy chaining would have kept that I don't want to say purity, I guess flavor. I guess by making it more his, by making it sort of more historical with experienced troops moving forward, you lose a lot of the history of each individual moment. Yeah. Uh, and I think the historicity of combat mission is what makes it just so damn perfect uh, in its earlier iterations. I admit I have not played the new Normandy combat mission yet. I probably should buy that uh, and get to when I've heard some good things. Uh, but the early combat missions are still some of my favorite games of all time. Yeah, you know, we talked about the new combat mission uh, a while back with uh, Ken Levine, and I think I think we had Julian on that show, or we may have had Bruce. I can't remember. It's it's been like three years. Yeah. Uh, but I remember we were all sort of lukewarm on it. But in in time, my memories have sort of uh, like I've I've warmed to it a little bit. I think the problem that I ran into it a little bit is just I'm like. It can be a very fussy game. Combat Mission always had the ability to be very fussy, yeah. and this one tends to be uh, a little bit bigger, a little bit, uh, a little bit more concerned with the nitty gritty, and so it's just one that I rarely end up having, uh, you know, the time to sit down and play a scenario in, uh, which is unfortunate. And I should yeah, try. Yeah, I was, I was on the show. Recalled we talked about the 3D aspect uh, as being a big problem. Um, I remember that show. I remember talking about in general the because uh, I, I played the Shock Force uh, combat mission, and this one was kind of based on that engine. So I remember that show uh, quite well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was yeah the three D thing. Was, I think was one of it just didn't quite work as well. But I've heard good things about the Normandy game and how it's been improved since. So maybe I'll buy that and give it a shot. Um, I mean, really, aside from you know Magic Hills and Magic Lands, you know, it's the num how many of the other guy you kill. The, the casualty count, the the the, 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 the body count, I guess, uh, is a big part of a lot of the, how games decide victory. Um, are there any particular systems of that that you find work really well, or games that stand out for you uh, that use that either primarily or in junction with the Magic Hill scenario? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, when Bruce and I were talking about Course and Pocket, uh, that's a really really well-balanced system where the objectives matter, but so does the integrity of your force. And so <laughs> if you just sort of play the, look, I'm just going for that hex because it's got the flag on it. If you, if you play that game, you're going to lose. You're going, you're going to shatter your army. Uh, and maybe, maybe you'll take the hex, maybe you won't. Uh, but the, the, yeah. the, the, the price you'll have paid will completely blow away whatever value. Uh, you get out of it, so that that tends to be a very it it tends to have a very good balance between okay yes you do need to take objectives in in this battle that is that is a part of this this engagement, but you also really need to make sure you're being smart about it and you know when to fold them, and that's that's uh, something I really enjoy. It also helps. And you can do this, I, I think you'd be a little more aggressive with systems like this, when you have a really good AI. And Course in Pocket yeah. has a great AI, Bruce and yeah. I were talking about this. This is, a, this is an AI that knows how to do a local counterattack. Not just like, you know, a one hex, try to, you know, bloody your nose a little bit and make you stop. Like, it will actually throw you back, you know, quite a bit. And then call off the the counteroffensive retreat, and then you got to put yourself back together. There's very few AIs that can do that, but if you have one that can, then you can have this more holistic approach to how are we how are we deciding victory. If the AI isn't very good at making judgments about how to employ troops and destroy your forces, and very few AIs are, mm -hmm. then suddenly the the magic hill makes a lot more sense because you can just tell an AI, look, just dummy, just stand here look after this thing, you'll be fine. But if you've got an AI, an AI that you can sort of trust to give some autonomy across a bigger map, then you can get into a little more of a realistic approach to what dictates the outcome of military engagement, which is the balance of, you know, who takes the decisive locations on the battlefield, but then also what was the butcher's bill for it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, many war games uh, that I cut my teeth on, I mean, are really, were really big on the on how many things did you kill? Uh, Harpoon, for example. All the scenarios. I mean, it's, it's a big thing of water. There aren't any magic hills, really. So it's all about how many boats did you sink? How many planes did you shoot down? Because there aren't any armies. It's just planes and boats. So there's nothing to capture. Um, so there's only the only way to measure victory and defeat is 
okay, so how many carriers are down? How many submarines are down? You've got to get this many of this type for a, vict for a victory. Uh, and there's your clock, go. Um, and the AI is, was terrible. It was like absolutely terrible. I mean, that's my, if I couldn't, if I couldn't double the major victory conditions, I was having a very bad game. If, I, if, if the major victory condition was one carrier and I didn't sink three, I was clearly sick. I was clearly had a flu or something right. because, you know, come on. There are three carriers out there and it's run by the AI and my backfires can shoot from 300 miles out. Come on. This is, this is easy. This is, this is peanuts. Um, and you're right. I mean, this is certainly a problem with AI. I think when, uh, miniature games are really all about body count. How many miniatures did you take off for the other side? And there yeah. might be victory conditions in, in some places, but most miniatures games are really about lining up your soldiers and then rolling the dice and seeing how many of the other guys soldiers get taken off. So, you know, Debellas Antiquatus or Command and Colors or um, uh, what's the one that I play? Field of Glory. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're really all about these ancient scenarios and you just line up your armies, and you bang them into each other, and you got to kill the other guy's troops more than he kills of yours. And they're, they're handicapped a little bit, depending on the size of the armies. I want to make it a little bit fair. But generally, the AI just doesn't understand the importance of protecting vulnerable troops. It'll often, AIs just aren't always good at knowing when something is in danger. Uh, I think it's certainly a problem with a lot of war games. Um, and like how you tell a good AI from a bad AI is, does it pull a wounded unit out of the line of fire and get a fresh shooter in that place? If it doesn't, then you've got a bad AI. And most AIs can't do that. And in casualty-based victory conditions, that's kind of essential. Yeah, it's managing casualties. At that point, you're getting into more of the sort of minute-to-minute -minute judgment calls that you know players are really good at right like if you played Sid Meier's Gettysburg for a while that's another one where it's sort yeah. of tried to balance um victory locations against casualties but you've played that for a while and you got good at it you got really good at basically assassinating other units like you, you know what I mean like you, you yeah. sort of you, you sort of picked up a skill of like all right now I'm just going to obliterate this rebel column there they go all right they're done now you know exploit that hole you know Flank these other two guys. All right, they're gone. You could you could sort of roll up lines really quick. That was, that was a big part of the game. Yeah. And the the AI the AI wasn't bad, and the scenarios took place over a short enough period that you know it's not like as the Union you were going to completely like unravel Lee's army on the first day. You just couldn't do it. You didn't have the time sure. or space. But it definitely seemed like a game where uh, it was weighted more toward the locations than, than the casualties. The casualties could sort of marginally affect how things turned out, but by and large, it seemed like a game that was much more driven about like who controlled who controlled the yep. key locations for the balance of the battle, and then we're you know we'll give you a plus or a minus based on how many casualties you, you ate along the way, uh, because you know the AI was was decent enough at trying to overwhelm positions or try to trying to hold on. To them, but at, you know, as a human player, you were just a little more. You tend to be a little more adept at just sort of finding the seams and the geometry of the map. You know, to sort of start picking apart lines. And mm -hmm. if, you know, if they'd probably made it a little bit more of a butcher's bill system, uh, you know, you you wouldn't have had that that fine balance, and it wouldn't have felt authentic, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's always a tough way to measure things, and I think about. Um, Operational Art of War. I mean, there's another game that uses, you know, the mixed system to an extent, um, with the point where every unit is, as we talk about repeatedly, almost mockingly, every unit is accounted down to the very last jeep. You just so every casualty is, you know, it's not just a butcher's bill. It's it's, a, it's an accountant's version of a butcher's bill. You know precisely how many things you destroyed that day, and all of these things are added and contribute to it and of course that game has so many so many issues uh with its ai but you know you could always because if you knew the math you know you could just work up how many things do i need to kill to get 
to to be worth Benghazi? How many how many Italian soldiers are worth Tripoli? So I can't get to Tripoli. Maybe I can just beat the hell out of these Italian soldiers for a while, and that'll get me the decisive victory I want and need. Which is always, you know, an interesting way of doing things, but it's, it turns, you know, the game into, it turns the definition of victory into, you know, running up the score instead of a strategic problem, which is how we like to think of war games. Right, but I don't know that I actually mind that so much. I mean, okay. because, you know, if you're, if, if you're going to go back to, like, sort of the, you know, Clausewitzian theory, right, of, of military conflict... One thing that a lot of war games don't get at is the fact that ultimately this is about breaking the enemy's ability to resist. Yeah. It's about breaking their combat right. force. And this is I mean, this is why the Civil War goes on forever, right? Sure. Is because nobody can deliver that 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 killing blow at the right moment. It it basically it drives Lee it drives Lee insane at Gettysburg. Uh, you know, how many times does he have to kill these people? Uh, you know, before the before they stay dead. Um, and so he you know, he's he's really he's really gambling hard at Gettysburg. And I, but I actually kind of like that in, in some war games, it, it stops being about taking key objectives or that, or it becomes less about that and becomes more about sort of the frictional action of war. Just, you know, can you grind down the things the enemy needs to continue to resist? So in your operational of war example, right? Like there's some things that are easy to replace. Rifle squads, you know, you can kill a lot of those. There's, there's in general, in most scenarios... They're going to be replaced. They come back. Um, but if you see a huge tank engagement happen, and you kill a bunch of enemy tanks and you know field artillery and such, that's a loss that's going to stick because you know the the you know the the replacement rate for those is terrible. So if you just gutted a Panzer you know a Panzer Corps, it's done. That's that's a that's a crucial loss, and if you can do that a few times over the course of a scenario, you've broken the enemy's ability to use the modern tools of war. And now right. you know now you can go after those objectives, or you can just start cleaning up. But I do like these games, and I, I would say that um, War in the East is is to an extent another one of these where where you're making these judgments about look, there's the there's the objective on the map. But then there's also these units that I actually need to destroy. You know, the, the, my enemy here, the objective, is the enemy army. And that's, that's what I've got to shatter here. And so I kind of like when, it, when, it, when a game gets at that, even though it's, it, 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 it can dilute uh, some of the purity we like in our, in our more tactical wargaming. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of depends, it kind of depends on the war game, though, right? I mean, that's why a Klaus-Fitzian model of breaking an army's will to fight so it loses the war might be great f to model in a really large scenario or campaign-type game. But if it's a battle like, if it's just a single battle, and I'm modeling the battle, not modeling the war, I should have to run up the score and say, there, I ran up the score, and now I've, now the army can't, now the enemy army can't fight me at Antietam or at Shiloh, or wherever, a battle that I'm not fighting. That's true. A battle true. that is not this, in this game. So they may have, in some hypothetical, imaginary world, they've lost their will to fight, but this is just farceless. This is just Lutzen. This is just that one battle. Um, so it certainly depends on the scale of the game we're talking about. Um, uh, whether, you know, the casualties should matter. Um, not every game is a huge campaign. Not every war game is a huge campaign. Many of my favorite war games are just small scenarios from here to there. Um, and the mixing, the idea of you know, running up the score because I don't want to go all the way up to the far ass corner uh, where there's a huge artillery unit and I can just keep hunting down, you know, runaway mob gladiators or Italian riflemen or Georgian recruits, whatever. Uh, just strikes me as you know, kind of cheese tactics. But you know, the victories don't. The victory conditions allow that to happen. Um, now I can, of course, restrain myself. Oh, I shouldn't do that. That's not sporting. Well, you know, I've got, I've got forty minutes to kill, and I just want to see decisive victory on my screen. Sometimes I'm weak. <laughs> yeah, it's. That's that's definitely true. That you know, the, the scale you're talking about, and I, I think this. This is actually an important point too. Is 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 you know the 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 more tactical level 
really does lend itself to sort of the, those magic victory locations because, like, you're right. If you know, if the British forces withdraw from Pegasus Bridge, even if they kill a whole lot of Germans on the way, like a ton, they've still basically like destroyed D-Day. You know, if that happens, yeah. and that's and and that's a good point. Like, the, and this is sort of what combat mission is is also about these really specific yes. moments where it's like, look, here's an encounter, and the broader context is almost irrelevant. It doesn't matter, you know, how many tiger tanks the Germans lose in this engagement or, you know, how many American infantry platoons get chewed up by MGs. It really just matters, like, who's going to control this, you know, one crucial building that overlooked this crossroads at the, you know, at the end of 12 turns? How, you know, who's, who's it going to be? And that's, and, and that's, that's all the context you're going to get. And that's, and that is how, that's, you know, kind of how wars are, are fought at that level, right? If you're, if you're a company commander, nobody gives a, like, nobody cares about what you think about, uh, uh, you know the big picture and your role in it you're just told go take that thing uh you know don't come back but it, it starts to get a little more frustrating when you're when you're playing games that operate on a slightly higher level and it starts to be about like okay well yeah you completely destroyed the enemy army but you didn't, and this is you know this is a familiar moment, right, from like Panzer General or something, yeah. where it's like, well, you really kicked a whole lot of ass, and it turns out there are no more, no Frenchmen left, but you didn't reach La Harve, did you? Nope. And the clock has expired. Oh, we're sorry. Do it again. Do it faster this time. Uh, so it's a, it's, it's it's an interesting problem, and I think I mean scale certainly does matter when we talk about war games, and I like the the. But yeah, it, it does depend on the level of you know the commander that you see yourself as. I mean, you could have, we could do an entire show on you know who exactly are you when you play a war game. Get really, really super existential here. Uh, am I really Napoleon? But Napoleon's a unit on the map. Hmm, what am I? Uh, get super philosophical, but I'm not nearly stoned enough for that quite yet. Uh, so it is. Uh, the distinction between the campaign side games and the scenario type games, the chained type games, it really does show that a war game designer ha- really has to know what they're building. <laughs> um, and you know we're we're kind of lucky. Uh, we play quite a few good war games. I haven't played as many as I have as I want to. Uh, I really should be playing. I think the new Flashpoint game is installed on my hard drive, and that's what I'm going to be playing this weekend, if I can find some time away from work. Uh, and uh, see how that does uh, victories and scenarios and that sort of thing. And I also want to play our, our, our multiplayer Scourge of Gettysburg thing, because having a, another human tell me what my objective is might change how I think about victory conditions and commander autonomy. Yeah. You know, something else that occurs to me, too, is just, do you think certain types of conflict lend themselves to certain types of victory locations? Like, when I think of, like, magic hilltops, I immediately think 18th century warfare, because it, like, so often, you have just insane commitments of resources to taking, you know... A, you know a small hill or you know a you know a, a small forest that skirmishes were firing out of and you'd have entire like dramas play out over these things because in those types of battles you know if you could dominate a key location on the battlefield you just won the battle you know mm-hmm. it, you, it was like somebody flipped a switch and you would completely shatter the enemy lines um, and this is you know kind of held true through the Civil War as well but I kind of feel like it gets a little less satisfactory when you start to push it deeper into modern warfare and it starts to feel a little more contrived when you know you're on a World War II battlefield the engagement ranges are huge um, and yet you know you'll have one little building um, behind a hill that for whatever reason your guys have to go and get, um, and and somehow that's going that's going to be decide that's going to be what decides the outcome. Yeah, I mean the size of World War Two battles and World War Two fronts generally means that you know cities. You, you take the city and some Smolensk's worth ten and Moscow's worth fifty and Kiev's worth twenty five or whatever, and you know that's what you've got to get into getting into these little city tiles without showing you what the city battle looks like, because the map's just too damn big to show that. Um, I'm sure Bruce knows of a thousand examples of probably sub-games within games that have uh, city encounters, but we won't get into those. Uh, But, you know, World War II 
squad type battles and uh, even above that, you know, maybe the farmhouse is has Nazi gold. It has a I crucial mean, I, field of fire. I mean, I mean, I, I, I chose the term magic hill in the email because I was thinking of um, it came to my brain. Table of victory conditions is um, uh, BBC in like 2002, 2003 did a used Rome total war to do this series of battles mm-hmm. uh, called there's a series called called time commanders and they'd have humans divide up the command and they control one army and someone else off screen would control the other army and the battle of telamon it's you know gauls f- fighting romans uh, and the humans said oh there's a hill we should, we should we should hold that hill if we hold the hill we'll be fine and the commentator said there's no reason to hold that hill that is not a magic hill but they'd been trained to think of, you know, hills. Oh, in games, hills are important. You hold the hill, then you win the battle because hills are good. This is this this little thing that clicked in their brains that they define victory conditions by a hill. They can try that by just holding ground. But of course, the proper strategy, because if they were facing two armies, was destroy one army and then destroy the other one. They just thought, oh, hill, high ground, hold it, we win. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of that to how. Um, poor war game design works. You know, here's a spot, and I think Moscow's important, so Moscow's going to be important. And we're going to make it important. Or, this Civil War general thought Little Roundtop was important. Hey, maybe Little Roundtop really, really is important. So I'm going to make it important. Uh, just this assumptions they've worked through in their heads and just assigned value to things, either based on you know, misreading of history or uh, just not understanding the relevance of, as you say, victory point locations to certain types of battles. I mean, you don't see victory point locations in, you know, ancient battles. No one fights a battle of Canae simulation and say, well, you know, you took, unless it's taking a camp. Oh, you took Hannibal's camp. Okay, that's worth something because his baggage is there. But, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm standing by the river. As long as I hold my legion by the river, I keep these 15 points. No one ever thinks like that for an ancient battle. But they do for, you know, gunpowder battles or, um, I think you're right, I think, you know, 18th century forward, you start thinking about victory conditions and holding ground and important spots and having a objectives on a battlefield. I'm not quite sure why we get that shift, that mental shift. Um, I'm not sure it necessarily reflects a great evolution in tactics um, between, you know, I guess the Thirty Years' War and uh, the Seven Years' War, but maybe there is something to it tactically that makes it make more sense in one than the other. Is it, be, is it because it's more connected to a campaign? And that if they hold this, if they hold this in this battle, they will therefore hold it throughout the larger war. Eighteenth-century warfare can be really weird, right? Because like, well, yes. if you read about like, Napoleon's invasion of Russia, um, you know, at the at the crucial moment, uh, you know, follow, you know, toward the tail end of of Borodino, uh, the French have got, moved heaven and earth to take a series of heights, and then they just sort of stall, and they just sort of park there. And they don't press on. And Napoleon is still waiting to come in his reserve to where he thinks the decisive moment is. And, you know, whatever his decision-making at that battle was, you know, whether he'd, he really botched it or not, the, the fact remains that he was used to, in previous battles, you could, you could storm his key position, and the enemy army would sort of unravel. And whether it was the position, or whether it was just because both sides recognized this was the decisive point... And whoever mm-hmm. won this push was going to win. However it played out, this was how a lot of his battles had, had played out historically. And so when, when you had these, you know, started these really indecisive and bloody battles in Russia, it, it just, you know, he's, it's almost like the French army is playing this victory location right. game and the Russians just don't give a shit. Yeah, it'd be interesting, you know, to have a game where you could assign, I get 100 points and I have to assign the values to certain objectives on a map. I say, this, is, this place is worth you know, 30 to me, this place is worth 40, and my score is based on some understanding of that. Uh, and I, of course, it's easy to game one way or another, or to have the opponent uh, set those goals. I don't know. But to have it 
the reflection of me but that you know shift in command priorities you know okay maybe all of a sudden getting up that hill isn't as important as i thought it was so um yeah you know this is something that this the scourge of war games do really really well uh yeah. and they manipulate it a little bit clearly uh the scenarios are running a script but it's actually quite clever when you know, so, you know, you start your division commander and your army's on the attack. And so it's like you have to, you know, storm this road, pass through this forest, and then take a position along this creek bed. Uh, and that's that's going to be your objective. So you're going to have to fight this multi-stage, you know, battle to go take this, this key position. And while you're doing that, suddenly, a, you know, unexpected enemy army appears behind your lines and is coming down, you know, behind your army. And you have to completely abort. You have to get the hell yeah. out and turn around. And now, whatever your objective was, just to hell with it. Who cares? You've got to go and defend now what is the really strategic... Now the, now the decisive point is shifted and it's behind you and you have to run. Yeah. Uh, but, it's, but it's actually really clever because what you, what you start to learn... Uh, what you start to learn with that is it sort of teaches you that lesson we were talking about earlier that you have to, preserving your forces becomes more crucial because yeah. the objective can shift. If you're you know going hell for leather after one objective and it turns out that the battle just takes a turn that you weren't expecting, you're dead. Um, and that's uh, that's really clever. I really like that. Yeah, I mean it's 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 really a wonderful wonderful system, um, and one I I we I promise we will do multiplayer someday. We we'll, we'll get our we'll get our seven people and we'll set this up somehow. Uh, it is the idea of you know priorities shifting on a battlefield is something kind of neat. Now you're not going to get that a long campaign uh, type game. Well, I guess you might. You could have. Be playing, you know, an Eastern playing war in the East, and then Hitler changed his mind, and oh, now that Crimea is worth seventy-five. Sorry, uh, and you've got to shift your force down there to get your decisive victory, or I guess be executed. I'm not quite sure how they make you do that, but what have you. So there's, it would be interesting to have more of a dynamic understanding of victory points and locations. But then again, that would probably lead to okay, this is just. Too annoying. I'm going to run up the score and just start, you know, dropping artillery shells on Hungarians until you know. And it, it changes the objectives too, because then you're, yeah. you're talking about a role-playing game. This is what Scorch yeah. War is. It's like you are role-playing right. a mid-level commander in the Civil War, which right. is really cool and it's really instructive. It it changes it changed my relationship to uh, that 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 part of history because it made me understand a lot of things that you know didn't necessarily make a lot of sense to me when I was reading. Uh, you know, map maneuvers. Uh, you know, in these in these books, and that's really cool. But at the same time, you're 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 putting the player in these shoes in in, in this person's shoes, and you're not. It, it's a different sort of war game, right? Where yeah. I think I just have this instinctive understanding that like a pure war game is going to be about well, you win the scenario, and it's it's you know whatever the starting terms are, the game's going to play it honestly yeah. with you, and it's it's not going to pull the rug out from under you because that's that's scripting, that's narrative, but this is supposed to be tactics. Well, I mean, there's room for all of that, right? I mean, there's no, of course, yeah. Uh, only one way uh, to do it. Um, but it's, I don't know, I, I just would love to mix things up a bit. So I had a question for you, though, because I couldn't think of any off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. What about asymmetric uh, objectives? So, like, you know, what I was thinking was something along the lines of, um, something along the lines of, say, War of the Ring, uh, where both sides are, you know, the 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 free peoples the elves and the humans are trying to destroy the one ring but they're also trying to throw back sauron's army and sauron is playing a game of military conquest where he's trying to take everyone's capitals but he's also trying to corrupt the fellowship of the ring and and get the one ring of power and you end up with kind of an interesting uh you know you, you this interesting tension between two tracks of victory two two types of two you know types of objectives um 
maybe another example I could throw out there would be a game like Labyrinth Global War on Terror, mm-hmm. um, where the West, the United States and its allies are basically trying to go in and stabilize uh you know, troubled sections, uh, you know, the tro- troubled areas in the world. And the, you know, the terrorist side is trying to destabilize as much of the world as possible or overstretch uh, the the Americans and have them basically go militarily bankrupt where they, they have no more troops to commit and they need to commit more or they lose the game. And right. that's that's kind of... You know the the tracks the, these games where you have people pursuing different tracks, uh, you know that are sort of complementary, they're parallel in some ways. Can you think of any war games that that do that do much like that? I can't think offhand. Most of them have you know not asymmetric. They're kind of they're they're they're, they're parallel to each other. You know, one defends, one attacks, yeah. or one has to hold out. Uh, until you know reinforcements come or uh, what have you, or they, or there's a neutral point. They're both racing towards an encounter scenario. A combat mission had a lot of these, uh, but once again, that's not asymmetric. It's everyone going towards uh, the same goal. Um, but there's I can't think of any games that have war, any war games that have dramatically different objectives uh, than that. Unless I'm I'm not even sure what one would look like um this is how great how imaginative i am uh, at nine thirty on a thursday night uh i guess you could have a war game i mean asymmetric warfare i mean you mentioned labyrinth yeah i think it must be an asymmetric warfare type game uh where you have an asymmetric force trying to inflict civilian casualties maybe and the other because it can't go up against uh, right. the military force and the, the military has to hunt down uh, the asymmetric army. So, you know, something like a terrorist hunt in Afghanistan or Pakistan or what have you, I guess, would be a model yeah. um, if there was a way to do if there was a non-violent where one side was non-violent. Yeah. I saw a non-violent war game. I'm not sure what that would look like. I mean, a force more powerful. powerful. Best, yeah. but that's not a war game, really. Um, so it's, uh, but I, yeah, I would think when, if if for asymmetric goals, you have to have an asymmetric design. You have to have asymmetric units and asymmetric opponents that don't see victory in the same way. So it would have to be one side defines victory one side defines victory in one way and the other side defines victory in another and that would require i would think something quite like um asymmetric counterinsurgent yeah uh warfare you almost get something a little bit like that in the XCOM terror missions right it's just that i never felt the design of those forced the um you know, because the way those missions are laid out is there's there's two ways to win and two ways to lose, right? You can clear the yeah. map of enemies, uh, yeah. or you can rescue uh, humans. Uh, you can right. rescue civilians. And the aliens can eat the humans, or they can destroy the uh, XCOM squad. And the, But the thing is, because the maps tend to be a little small uh, and, and, and such, there's actually rarely that much pressure to go and try to rescue humans, right? Like, in general, you're, you're still better off going to your standard operating procedure as a squad mm-hmm. and just go, just go kill the bugs. But I always felt the potential was there to have this interesting setup where it's like, okay, so you could take two really different strategies, right? You could spread out and just try to get civilians off the off the map just get them the hell out of there and just forget about fighting the battle or you can try to squat up and then try to steamroll your way to victory really quickly and that 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 possibility was there i just felt like it 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 was it was rarely um rarely necessitated that choice uh in in the missions themselves yeah that's an interesting uh model i mean but i don't think it was quite distinguished itself uh, from the other scenarios, I mean, generally you're better off, I think, as a human. I mean, you're, yeah, there are two ways to win, but generally, to save the civilians, you've got to kill a lot of bugs. Yeah. Uh, if you kill a lot of bugs, you're going to save a lot of civilians. Um, so, yeah, there's two ways to win. But really, they're just they're not two separate ways to win. Just either you save all the civilians first, or you kill all the bugs first. Um, and generally, send some of those humans will turn into bugs, and that's just 
that's just the price of letting aliens uh, into your onto your planet. That even so. Yeah, you know, there's one more thing I wanted to give a shout out to, and that was the uh, Octung Panzer series, uh, which was oh, a bit like yeah. combat mission. Yeah. Um, and now I think it's called Graviteam Tactics. Uh, and I need to get back into that because I actually really enjoyed those games. So one thing they did that was really interesting, right, is that I think they got an important uh, – Bruce has had me doing a lot of reading on the Eastern Front, right? So I'm, yeah, I'm, he, 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 he sent you a, a care package, right? Of He did. He sent me uh, uh, The Forgotten Soldier by Guy, Guy Sager, uh, who was a uh, French-German who ended up fighting with the, um, I think, the Grossdeutschland Division. Uh, mm-hmm. Over in Russia, and then he sent me uh, the retreat uh, by I don't remember his name, but it's a it's an account of sort of the stalling out of Operation Barbarossa and uh, the first Soviet major major Soviet counteroffensive of the war. But what the uh, what, what Oxygen Panzer gets at is something of a, that I've been reading about in these books, which is just that. You know the the size and scale of the Eastern Front is is really kind of mind boggling. That you know, when you think of the Western when you think of the Western Front and like operations in France, you'd have something like you know Band of Brothers, Easy Company, all of Easy Company's working to take you know a corner of a village or something. And that's that's mm-hmm. what Easy Co- Company's up to in this battle. And in on the Eastern Front, you'll have the same amount of troops like fighting a battle that just stretches a, a front of, you know, several kilometers, right? Where you've got, you know, you're, you're controlling a company and the squads can barely even see each other. Uh, things are so spread out. But the way they structured the campaigns and then the individual scenarios in, um, in Octung Panzer is that you've got the entire theater... And then all these smaller sub-maps, and on these, on these smaller maps, there's also these, these objectives, and that's going to control sort of how the, how the ground shifts uh, from one phase of the battle to the next. And so you're sort of, yeah, you do have these, these flags on the map. You have these strategic locations, mm-hmm. and kind of these odd locations, right? You, you, have, yeah. you have a very slight, like, you know, a, a field that doesn't even have a cover. It doesn't really have great line of sight, but you just need to hold it because it connects one part of your line to another. It, it, it matters. It, somebody's got to be there and have his ass planted on it, uh, or, or you lose the ground. And what what I like about what what this gets across is this idea that, and Combat Mission did this a little bit too, is that, you know, in these in these in these like operational level encounters where the where the ground is shifting very slowly, and you've got sort of a finite amount of troops, you have to make really tough choices about like okay. Is it worth it to hold this little corner here? Is it, you know, can, can, can I even do it? Where's the, the map is so big, you may not even recognize where the decisive p- moment is yeah. happening. Uh, and it was, it, it was a really interesting, it made, you, it made you think about like how much judgment was required to fight these kinds of battles because it, it's very hard to figure out even what you should be defending and what its worth is. And you often don't know until the next phase and you see how the battle lines shift you don't know if you made the right call or not. And that's a really interesting and I think true thing for a war game to get across. Yeah, it really is. I mean, sometimes I was just so paralyzed, I just ignored the victory conditions. I, I can't make heads or tails out of I don't know what's, what's important here. Uh, so I'll just I'll just go with my gut. <laughs> uh, which sometimes is a good thing, and sometimes it's a bad thing. Sometimes my gut's right, and sometimes it's wrong. But I, I, in many ways, the oddness of the victory locations or of the, of the objective locations let's just call them that more than anything else you know it's kind of so oh, you should be pushing to, in general in this area to this nondescript gully what's in the gully nothing yet why don't you go over there and look uh, it was just kind of a weird way to set objectives uh, but it would often it would force me to pay a lot of attention to the to the topography to okay is there anything they want me to see over there or not is it the enemy think that's important or is it really really important is it important for my troops is it important for their troops in many ways i guess you could see that almost as an asymmetric look because it forced me to think to analyze the terrain for well this isn't very good for my tanks I've got mostly tanks, but if I take these troops off, I can hold that. Maybe that means infantry's on the way. And just trying to understand the game and the map in some very un- ways I'm not used to thinking uh, about tactics and objectives in a war game. 
Yeah, and and I think that's one reason it was also kind of unapproachable, right? Because you know we started yeah. out by talking about how a scenario can clarify things for for you and make it really yeah. easy to sort of get into a war game. Yeah. Whereas this was very like it's very much a series where it's like, look, you've got like a hundred guys and you've got to control two villages and about three kilometers of country road. Good luck, buddy. Yeah. And that's, and yeah, I know exactly that feeling of paralysis you're talking about where the scenario starts. And, and, and this is the danger of a, of a game like this. The pacing can be deadly dull because you, you actually haven't put enough value on any objectives to force conflict. Yeah. And so you can have armies basically kind of walking past each other for an entire battle. Yeah. I mean, just because I think this is an important field doesn't mean the enemy thinks it's an important field. Uh, so it's like, oh, it's like your Napoleon Russian example. You know, the Germans are just going to walk by me and set up shop somewhere else. Well, great. Uh, and I've got to walk across this entire big field to kill Germans. I signed up to kill Germans. Yeah. But on the other hand, when it, when it's sort of like, you know, when it all came together and you had sort of a like really odd and unexpected dynamic encounter where yeah. you realized at the same moment, like, you know, you were fighting over two different objectives, but you had a really golden opportunity to mess with each other. Uh, and then you have a, 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 an incredible fight that, you know, you just not used to seeing in other war games. It could be it could be really special. Now, now I want to play that again. No, I've definitely, I've definitely been thinking about it, uh, reading these books, because, yeah, they, they really did get across some things that very few games have about the Eastern Front, and, and you know, which is just that, you know, even at the tactical level, the size and scope of the thing made it a different kind of war and a very cha- different sort of challenge, uh, which is which is really cool. Uh, so, you know, we could talk about this all night. And I'm almost tempted to, but we should probably wrap it up because it's just turning into our favorite war games. Yes. And then the war <laughs> stories will start soon. And then out comes the whiskey. I don't have whiskey. I'm not allowed to have whiskey quite yet. Oh, that's right. Bastards. Yeah. Well. But if, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be good for... So you, you, had a, you had a minor throat surgery. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't a little whiskey be good for maybe making sure there's no infections and yeah, numbing but the, Yeah, but the, but the Tylenol 3s don't exactly mix with it. So That's true. Or do you get an awesome amplification? No, that's a terrible idea. Do not yeah, do so that. We, we do not recommend the taking of drugs with pretty much anything, but... But definitely, definitely not the Tylenol 3s and, and cocktail combo. No, but someday we will have whiskey and we'll play a war game in person. That will be a delight. Uh, but until then, we'll have to play by email. Yes. All right, so that does it for our discussion of war game uh, victory conditions. And it definitely lays the groundwork for another conversation about scenario design. Uh but that'll have to wait for another day. Next week, hopefully, Bruce and I will finally get around. He will finally press Gamey into playing his beloved Conflict of Heroes. And then I'm hoping the week after, uh, Troy, Bruce, and I can all talk about uh, Flashpoint Campaign's Red Storm. Uh, but it's been an odd month, a challenging month. We're just taking it a day at a time. Uh, so hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next week, this has been Three Moves Ahead. Good night. Good night, everyone.